Seal Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. In celebration of Steel Day, coming up on September 23rd, we are presenting a classic interview from our archives with one of the steel industry's heroes. In 1997, Charlie Carter, current Vice President and Chief Structural Engineer for AISC, presented Omer Blodgett with the AISC Luminary Award and recorded an interview with him. If you've been tuning into Steel Profiles, then you've been hearing about what the structural steel industry can do, but have you seen what we do? It can be pretty amazing, and Steel Day is your opportunity to experience it firsthand. The industry's largest educational and networking event returns for a third successive year, and you won't want to miss out on the action. Attend a Steel Day event on September 23rd and explore the structural steel supply chain live. And who better to learn from than the industry experts who are opening the doors to their facilities? All of the events are free, and there's one near you. Visit www.steelday.org to find out more and sign up today. And now, let's hear what Omer Blodgett has to say. I believe firmly, I believe we should never design with a heart. I'm amazed when I work with mathematics, God created mathematics, I've never seen mathematics fail. I don't really think you can, I won't use the word authority or anything like that, that you can stand back and talk about welding unless you've been a welder. I had a thirst for knowledge. If I had a little magazine, there was a Welder's Digest that came up, I would read that till it fell apart. So I learn, I learn, I learn. It's a wonderful opportunity. On February 19, 1997, Omer Blodgett was awarded the first AISC Engineering Luminary Award for advancing the art and science of steel construction. As a young engineer in a mature industry, uh, I lack the perspective of history that most of my colleagues uh, benefit from every day. And uh, when I listen to some of the discussions that take place at our meetings, I always feel like I gain a better understanding of how we got where we are and uh, what our past history was that led to, to today. And unfortunately, uh, those discussions kind of occur by chance more than by design. Uh, this lecture today is uh, our, our first attempt at AISC to reverse that trend. We're honored to have Omer Blodgett of Lincoln Electric Company uh, to speak on the past, present, and future of welding. As Bill mentioned, he's the first subject of the AISC Engineering Luminary uh, video series, uh, which is why you see all this uh, equipment hovering over your heads. And perhaps the best way uh, I can think of to introduce uh, Omer Blodgett is to note uh, that when I say Omer, uh, one immediately knows who you're talking about. There's no other, uh, very few other names, I think, in our industry that are so synonymous with one person and the uh, excellence and credibility that they've established for themselves. Omer Blodgett pioneered the design of welded structures through countless technical articles and handbooks, hundreds of seminars, and years of technical assistance to designers. Omer Blodgett's influence on the field of steel construction is incalculable, so far-reaching that citing landmark structures could not begin to demonstrate the impact he has had on the state of the art. 
It can truly be said that his work has affected every steel structure built over the course of the last three decades. Omer Blodgett was born in Duluth, Minnesota in 1917, where he was influenced by his father's work in ship construction and repair. If my dad had stayed in the structural field, he graduated in 1910, he could have coasted all his life. He didn't need any new information because nothing changed. The steel didn't change, the rivets didn't change, and he died in 1952. And uh, so it's a lesson for all of us. We have to keep up to date. Today, we can't live that way. We've got to keep up to date. Codes are changing, steels are changing. Because Omer's family lived on a boat, they were faced with constant repairs, which included welding and patching thin areas on the boiler. To save on labor costs, Omer's father purchased this welding machine the year Omer was born. By the time Omer was 10 years old, he had already learned to weld on it. Life for the Blodgett family was never luxurious, but the depression, which sent shockwaves across America, affected the Blodgett family severely. The depression came along and wiped us out. We lived in Duluth during the fall and winter time, and so we stayed up there. We brought the welding machine up there, and we just, the depression was on. We put our backyard into vegetables. We all worked together. Mother kept the books. When you work for your father, you turn your paycheck back to the family to keep food on the table. You work all hours. There's a certain amount of work that can only be done on New Year's Eve because that's when the building is shut down. Uh, you work out in a howling blizzard and finally you get your welding machine back in the shop and you go home and build a fire and mother starts the supper and an hour later you got a phone call and you got to start out again. So I know what it's like to work hard. We started a little welding shop and we ended up with about four or five welding machines. I welded pipe, I welded pipe with settling. This is the aerial bridge at Duluth. When I was 20 years old I welded an 8 inch pipeline over the top of that bridge. This is the first time in my life that I ever climbed steel. Now, when you're young, you're thrilled about it, so you don't think about the danger. And fortunately, you start on the bottom and you work your way up and get used to it. If the first day I came on the job, I had to be up there on the top, I would never have made it. But you gradually get used to it. All this grounded Omer Blodgett in the realities of what it takes to weld a joint, an important influence that has stayed with him throughout his entire career. I don't really think you can, I won't use the word authority or anything like that, that you can stand back and talk about welding unless you've been a welder and actually welded and understand what the problems are. You can't sit behind a desk and uh, start writing specifications. I tell engineers again and again to get up out of your chair, go down on the shop floor and see what's going on so you understand what some of the problems are that these welders are facing. So I think it's, it's helpful that I was a welder. I think all welding foremen should be a welder at one time. I think all your inspectors on welding should have been a welder at one time. Omer had a passion for learning the craft of welding and discovered his great thirst for knowledge. During this time, I graduated from high school. My mother made me go to the Duluth Junior College. Now, this is sponsored by the University of Minnesota. Uh, it was credited with Minnesota. It was an attempt to get kids in that could only get two years of college and then encourage them to go to Minneapolis and finish up. This is now the University of Minnesota Duluth campus. 
And I took, uh, when I got through, I thought that was the end of my education and I would be welding the rest of my life. During the time, I, uh, during the two years after that, I continued to study and fortunately there was a professor, Joe Wise, from the University of Minnesota that taught a class in structural analysis. Duluth is 163 miles away from Minneapolis and he would hop on a train once a week in the morning. It took all day to get to Duluth. He'd get there about five o'clock in the afternoon, go up to Central High, and he'd have this class made up of some of the local engineers there. And then when the class is over about nine or 10, he'd, walk, he'd go down to the uh, depot, and about 11 o'clock at night, he would take what was called the milk train. This is a train that made stops all the way to Minneapolis picking up milk. And he would get into Minneapolis about seven in the morning, and then he'd go to work. And uh, I'm saying this because so many little things fitted into my life that made it possible for me to be here. If I didn't have this class, I wouldn't be here. And then I had a thirst for knowledge. If I had a little magazine, there was a Welder's Digest that came up, I would read that till it fell apart. And in February of 1939, the University of Minnesota Center for Continuation Study had a three-day seminar. They called it Welding Engineering. They had Leon C. Beber of U.S. Steel come. He was the chief welding engineer. They had E.W.P. Smith of Lincoln Electric doing work that I'm doing now. He came. They had three professors from the School of Mines, and I just floated on air. I determined that I would get back to school if it killed me. I had no money. We worked. I turned my paycheck over to my dad. We put all our money in the pot so we could live. Mother kept the books. It was a really hard time. And I went to Minneapolis without any idea that I'd be able to stay there. I ate in a co-op. I paid $5 a week for food, and we all put in so many hours washing dishes. And when I would leave Duluth, I would buy a $5 Greyhound bus ticket, round trip. And I put the return stub in my wallet so if anything happened, at least I could get home. My first year at Minnesota cost me $500. That's tuition, everything. I didn't spend a nickel. And uh, I felt like a lady who was given the opportunity of going into a grocery store and for 10 minutes hauling out anything that she could get in that cart. I wanted to take everything I could get my hands on because I thought I'd have to go home. Now, this is a wonderful way to go to school. And I averaged 22 credits. We were on the quarter system. My senior year in, in the spring, I carried 27 credits. I had to get permission to do it. I just worked my heart out. I had one whole year of theory of elasticity, vibration, photoelastic stress analysis, a lot of machine classes and so forth. And I graduated in 1941. The war was just starting. In fact, we could go into Northrop Auditorium and for a nickel, we could go in there and see newsreels. Germany had already invaded Czechoslovakia. Poland had fallen. We knew what was coming. Lend-Lease had already started. Despite his youth, he was immediately made the welding superintendent for the Globe Shipbuilding Company, where he supervised up to 400 welders who fabricated 29 all-welded ocean-going ships. We had a real problem during the war because the welders had a turnover, and we had to put them in welding school and get them out welding. And in four years, we turned out 29 all-welded ocean-going ships for the Maritime Commission. They were pretty good-sized ships. And we ended up with 400 welders and 2,000 people in the yard. 
It was good training experience. It was horrible. I don't think I could have done it unless I was just a young kid. I was 24 years old at the time. Uh, our average turnover from figures from the government during the war were 80% a year turnover. And especially in the field of welding where it's very highly skilled, you can imagine the heartaches. Uh, electrode was at least six months delivery. Many times we'd run out of rod and have to go to another yard and borrow it. Uh, I learned the hard way. If you take a, a little study of welding, they'll tell you that concave fillet welds might have a tendency to crack. Convex will not crack. Now that's head knowledge. But I remember one night we were welding the mastheads on the cargo ships. It's a big weldment that you can crawl inside of. We used what was called 6012 electrodes. It's a very easy rod to use. You get a convex fillet. In other words, there's a little hump to it. We didn't have arc air, we had chipping. And uh, we ran out of rod, we had to go over to the Butler shipyard and bring back some rod and it turned out to be what was called hot rod. And those fillets are concave. And the next morning, a third of that welding was cracked. And we had to take the chipping gun and chip it all out. So you learn the hard way on something like that. You have the courage of your convictions and the knowledge that come through actual welding. For some reason on the Great Lakes, they launched sideways. And I rode every ship in. You're just pushing things out as fast as you could push. For a couple of years, we worked 24 hours a day with two shifts, seven days a week. It was bitter cold, many times 30 below zero. We never knew what it was at night. Uh, we had enough settling and oxygen for flame cutting. We didn't have enough for preheating. There was no preheating done on these ships. As you work harder, you add more people to the yard and you get more work done. By the time we launched, we had all the uh, deck houses on, no engine in it, by the way. And this one went over 45 degrees. They're not supposed to go that far, but this rolled over 45 degrees. And the bad part was it seemed like an eternity before it decided to come back up. We didn't know which way it was going to go. So after that, we had engines installed in the ship before they were launched. When the war was over, Omer Blodgett joined the Lincoln Electric Company in Cleveland, Ohio, where he has found a home for the last 53 years. His first work at Lincoln Electric was in sales. Uh, selling is an education. You get into a lot of plants, fabricating shops, energy engineering offices, and you learn a lot, more than you would if you were in one company all the time. By 1954, Blodgett was established as a design consultant with the Lincoln Electric Company. Since that time, he has worked on problems in both the mechanical and structural field. One impact of his work has been to establish welding as the technique of choice in connecting steel structures. If we didn't have welding today, I think the world would come to a grinding halt. You can look around, you just couldn't put somebody's major structures up if we weren't welding. We had to go back riveting and bolting. It would get to the point where the bolts would outweigh the material. And uh, so I think the future lies in welding. Another of Omer's functions at Lincoln Electric has been to develop the company's machine and structural design seminars. Now, our first seminars at Cleveland, of course, EWP Smith had them for a long time. And uh, we started our seminars in 1956. This is when the Interstate Highway Program started. The first Monday, all Monday, was the discussion on welding versus riveting. And then, inside of a few months, we switched that to welding versus bolding. Within a year, we didn't do that anymore. 
because you're not gaining anything by arguing. And we felt that the people coming into the seminars were sincere in wanting to apply welding. Let's spend all our time helping them to get their costs down in welding. That's what our seminars today. We don't compete with anybody, but we're trying to keep our costs down. Since 1945, Omer Blodgett has also helped develop national standards for the design of welded structures through long service on the AWS D1.1 and AISC specification committees. I was on the welded interior beam to column connection committee of AISI back in the 60s. John Gilligan was chairman. We met at Bethlehem at Fritz Engineering Lab, and for several years, there a lot of testing was done in cooperation with AISC, and this is where we got the formulas for AISC and beam the column connections. The code tried to do what was right. And in 1946, now this is the year when the war was over, things are getting going again. It's, it nails down the electrodes. They don't say an E60 or E70 or E80 like we do today. It said E6010, E6011, E6012, E6020, E6030. That's it, you gotta use those. Now that would be all right if the code was only out for a year and came out every year as new things came along, but it was 17 years before a new code came out in 1956. No, 63. In the meantime, iron-powdered electrodes, I'm sorry, well they came out too, but low-hydrogen electrodes came out. You know that low-hydrogen is specified frequently. You're worried perhaps about hydrogen embrittlement. And so we use low-hydrogen for our structural welding. Now, fortunately, we got the fab shop out there that knows what the life is all about and knows that low hydrogen is a better electrode to use, so they'll use low hydrogen electrode, even though the code told them to use a 6010 electrode, see? So there has to be some give and take. Another issue that we get into today is that uh, a few years ago, they thought they could have an AWS code every year. Now they've settled for two years. I don't really think we have that much new material every two years. But back in the past, we had quite a few years that would go before a new code came out. Now, on your contract, when you specify welding, do you refer to the current code, or do you refer, say it's 1990, we have a 1996. Would you refer to the 1996 code, or would you refer to the current? Your job's going to be maybe completed about four or five years from now, see? Well, if you say 1996, you've got to use it. That's why in our department, we have every issue of the AWS Structural Welding Code. You may have built something that's, uh, that's going to be built under the 1972 code. We've got to be able to take it out and see what it said then. The philosophy is generally that codes get better. That's 99% true, that a new code will be better and more safe to use. You're probably in better hands if you'd refer to the current. In other words, if this is going to be built in year 2000, uh, just say whatever it's don't, don't tie the year down, but say whatever code is available at that time to use. So that might have helped in this situation. I think we learned our lesson, so we're a little careful about nailing this down too much. We have to have a little open end that allow new things to come in because the codes are about the last ones to hear about it. Now, in 1956, you can't read the fine print. This is basically what it said in fatigue. Preferably, don't weld an attachment transverse to a tension flange if there's a wide range of tensile stress. That's exactly what it says. Now the word preferably, that wipes this whole thing. Now we can't use that today. We have to have mandatory words. You shall, not may. 
It's like your son saying, uh, Dad, can I have the car tonight? And you say, preferably. I remember in Bay City, Michigan, I wanted to go out camping with the Boy Scouts once. And I asked my dad if I could go. And, well, it's all right if you go, but I kind of hate to see you go. <laughs> Didn't know what was going on. And uh, that's a terrible answer to give somebody, see? So there, there are reasons why this isn't bad. Now, what is a wide range of stress? That's up for grabs, see? Now, I can't be too critical because if you go back in 1956, what was the climate at this time? What were people talking about? The code said, all wells shall be sound. You can just imagine this voting on it. Anybody want to vote no on that, see? <laughs> all wells shall be sound. But what does it really mean? Porosity shall be reasonably dispersed. I'm quoting now. And then the thing that usually gets me, um, when they sign a contract, or make a, usually the last thing they'll say, weld with a sequence that minimizes distortion. Now we have that in our code sometimes. But what does that mean? How is that going to help the fabricator? Nobody obviously would weld that's going to make distortion worse. See? I'm trying to say that these are beautiful words, you can't use them. Now, we have an engineer, I like to think that this is a real nice fellow all through history and in his life through kindergarten. He never got in trouble. He never threw spitballs. He used to help the teacher and clean the erasers and everything. And so legally, he's going to follow that statement. He's up at the top. He's not going to weld something transverse to a tension member. This actually happened. So his transverse stiffener is welded to a longitudinal plate, not to the flange. The plate is not welded transverse to the flange, it's lo welded longitudinally to the flange, see? We're dancing on the hot stove here. And uh, legally, he can't go to jail. But morally, he's done more damage to that than if we left it alone. Now, they find in research today, over the years, that when you put an attachment on a member, you do affect its fatigue, it drops a little bit. The shorter that attachment is, the less harm it does. So today, we'd be better off. Now, the thing I like about today, when you have this question about a transfer stiffening, surely you weld it to the flange, you don't have to go back to preferably, don't do it if there's a wide range of stress, which doesn't answer anything. Now we have numbers. I believe firmly, I believe we should never design with our heart. And I just wish we had more time to show you slides on this. Somebody, I can't take credit for this, I don't know if it's Galilee or Newton, somebody said you cannot understand something unless you can express it mathematically. And I've seen so many times we get into a question about something, if we can turn around and use a little math, all of a sudden it clears up. I think math is the answer on these things. So today, should you weld or don't? Fine. We have a category C for this. You calculate the allowable fatigue stress of that connection under your condition of loading and the number of cycles. Uh, let's just say it's 13,000, 13 KSI. If your flange has 20,000, you don't weld it. If you're out in an area where the flange is under 13, you do weld it, see? It eliminates this, what'll I do? Although Omer Blodgett designs from his head, the way he runs his life is purely from the heart. And this can be seen in part through his loyalty and allegiance to Lincoln Electric. I couldn't work for any other company, I really couldn't. I admired Mr. Lincoln. I lost a friend when he died. Uh, he started the company uh, over 100 years ago in 1895. He was honest. He worked hard. Uh, he used to quote the Sermon on the Mount. 
I think there were some Christian principles that rubbed off on him because back in the Depression, he started the incentive system. He shared his income with his employees. They still pay a bonus. He didn't have to do that, but he was willing to, uh, give, in normal times, a bonus would be equal to the wage, but uh, with, because of the business dropping off and so forth all across the country and the world, it's down to about 60%. But he didn't have to do that. Uh, we have a suggestion system that if you think of an idea that'll save money, um, they figure out what they'll save in a year, you get half of that. Omer attributes much of his successes to the mentoring he received from Mr. Lincoln. These days, he is still passing on his knowledge to his own mentor at Lincoln Electric, Dwayne Miller. That mentoring often takes the form of brainstorming solutions together. There was a time in all companies when there was no coffee breaks. And I found when I'd be working on a problem and I just wasn't getting a solution, sometimes I would get up and I'd go to the drinking fountain, not the close one, but the one down at the end of the hall, get a drink of water and come back and I'd have a solution. Now that kind of drifted into the coffee machine. We don't have regular coffee time, but frequently I'll get so wound up, I'll say, I've got to get away from all of this. Come on, Dwayne, let's go get a cup of coffee and we'll head down, we'll take napkins and write on them, and we'll discuss things that we normally wouldn't discuss upstairs in regard to our work, and uh, sharing and getting ideas. It is brainstorming, and I think it helps. During all his years at Lincoln Electric, Omer has utilized his unique knowledge of welding practice, metallurgy, and structural design to author important papers on sizing welds, control of distortion, brittle fracture, and fatigue. William McGuire, Professor Emeritus at Cornell University, best summed up Omer Blodgett's outstanding career when he said, Omer Blodgett's understanding of what is right and practical in structural welding and his ability to communicate knowledge are unsurpassed. For 40 years, engineers throughout the world have looked to him for guidance, and he has responded with unfailing energy and kindness. But when Omer is asked what he is most proud of, he gives an answer that expresses more clearly than anything else the superior kind of man he is. Being honest, being friendly, and uh, I think integrity is something worthwhile. I think what things you do, I think that probably would come second. I think it's a person that you are is more important than probably what you've done. And, uh, I try to live my life that way. If you'd like to see the full video of this classic interview with Omar Blodgett, please visit our website at www.aisc.org slash Blodgett. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Join us for next month's episode when I'll be talking to the father of LRFD, Professor Ted Galambos. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.